Okay, if you have a Bible, if you want to open up to Psalm 34, we're going to be finishing Psalm 34 today, uh, looking at the second half. Next week, we're going to be starting our series in 1 Timothy. I pray, um, you know, in the summer, people that we've been coming, we've been going uh, this way. Now, I pray as you've made it, whatever uh, sermons you've heard, as we've looked into various psalms, I hope your hearts were encouraged. I hope you've been blessed, and I hope that whatever psalms that you heard, that you can take some of those psalms to heart. That's kind of been the intention, is that we went over the psalms, or certain verses I probably nailed down pretty hard on, like Psalm 19, verse 1. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. Like that's, that's a song that we should, or that verse, we should take to heart. Anytime we see sunset, sunrises, even like a, the kind of orange fireball that the sun looked like yesterday, that's declaring the glory of God. I want to remember that. We looked at Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Better to, to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I want to take that with me. I think I want us to take that to heart. Look at Psalm 90. Uh, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I, I don't want to lose that. I want to gain a heart of wisdom. I want to gain a heart of understanding. And of course, I don't know if any of you remember Psalm 150, if you heard it, praise the Lord, that everything that has breath, praise the Lord. That, that's something that I really don't want to lose. That everything that has breath, praise the Lord. And so now as we return to Psalm 34, we're looking at a testimony of David. We looked at the first half last week, like any good testimony, I pray our hearts will be encouraged, our hearts will be challenged, we'll be fired out to live for God. Even that song that we sang in finishing, Lord, light the fire in us again. I pray that the testimony of David, the second part of Psalm 34, would do that in our hearts and in our lives. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll stand together and read God's word. Let's bow with me as we pray again. Oh Lord, our, our songs have risen up before you. I pray they're pleasing to your ear. Lord, thank you for James being able to help lead us in that. Lord, now as we open up your word, as I preach it, I pray, Holy Spirit, have your way in me. God, even issues with sound, whatever, Lord, I pray you open up our ears, open up our hearts, and through the preaching of your word, do your work in us. Lord, encourage us where we need it, rebuke us where we need it. I pray that your word would be a mirror to our soul, reveal sin in our lives, expose it, and then lift high Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would do that. Exalt your name through the preaching of your word now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you want to open up your Bible, or I guess you already have, Psalm 34, if you want to stand with me, we'll read Psalm 34 together. Yeah. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. May the Lord bless his word to our souls this morning. You can have a seat. So we're looking again at Psalm 34, a testimony of David. Again, just a background to this psalm. If you'll notice there at the start of Psalm 34, David wrote this. Uh, he was in the time of David's life, king, well, before he was king David, he was fleeing from Saul, who was the current king, and he, the current king, King Saul, wanted to kill him. And so as he was fleeing, he left Israel, like God's kind of country, God's land, and he went into the Philistine country, God's enemies, and he ran into a king, King Achash. And then in King Achash's presence, he's like, isn't this David? Who they said Saul killed thousands, David ten thousands. Like, is this David who's with us? And David was scared for his life, so he pretended to be crazy. And in pretending to be crazy, somehow this king spared his life and he left. And he made it out alive. And then David, some point down the line, led by the Holy Spirit, reflecting that God delivered him from the Philistine king, delivered him from his fears, he wrote Psalm 34. To, to remember what God has done. And uh, that's, we looked at the first part of Psalm 34 last week. We, we saw in the first uh, 10 verses, we saw David's testimony of praise, calling people to magnify the name of the Lord. We saw his testimony of deliverance, how David was rescued from his troubles. And then we saw his testimony of God's goodness. And just kind of continuing on with that kind of theme of David's testimony, there's three other stanzas, other kind of parts of this uh, poetry I want to bring to your attention. And the first one, looking at verses 11 to 14, I want us to see the testimony of the good life. The testimony of the good life. If you look with me in verse 11, David continues his song, Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Again, this psalm was, was written to be taught, was written to teach. And even as David says, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you. It's very similar to Proverbs. In the Proverbs, where it's like a, a, the wisdom of a father to a son or to a daughter. This is what David's doing. And what does he want to teach him? Not just anything, but he says, come, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You can learn the fear of the Lord. 
Right? Romans 10.17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, the fear of the Lord, it's, it's more than respect. It's like reverence and awe. As in like God who's in heaven and we're on earth. It's not Jesus is my buddy, but it's like the Alpha and the Omega who made all things and spoke them into existence. My head's down before him. The, the fear of the Lord. But we can learn the fear of the Lord. We can grow in it. I just want to bring your attention to uh, Deuteronomy 31. And in this psalm, I'm going to be, as, as per usual, I'm going to be in a lot of different scriptures back and forth. It's probably more helpful sometimes if you just write them down and look at them after. But what I really want to do in, in saying that is, what I'm telling you is seen throughout Scripture. It's not like, hey, this is just my opinion. I wanted to show you in Scripture. You can learn the fear of the Lord. We need to be taught it. So Deuteronomy 31, looking at 9 to 13, this is the end of kind of Moses writing. They're about to go into the promised land, and then Moses leaves with this charge. He says, Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Read the word of God. And what is the result? Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner, like the visitor, the foreigner, within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. So you can learn the fear of the Lord. We can learn. We can grow in the fear of the Lord by the word proclaimed. That's what they're going to do in Moses' time. That's what we need to do. And I just want to encourage, especially our young families, have young children, older children, teenagers, what have you, Read scripture to your kids. That they would learn the fear of the Lord. Whether it's when they're really young and you just have like a, a children's Bible. Like read them scripture as they get older. Like opening up a gospel. Opening up Proverbs. Opening up scripture with you. It could be at the breakfast table. It could be at supper. It's a lot easier to do with a meal. When you sit down. But read scripture to your children. That they may know and learn the fear of the Lord. In this psalm, we've, we've seen it referred to already a few times. In, in, in Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 9, oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And of course, when we're talking about fearing the Lord, you're not, it's not just like a head nod. It's not like verbal assent. Oh, yeah, I fear the Lord. Like if you fear the Lord, you'll see it in your life. You'll see it in your actions. You'll see it in how you live. And that's kind of like the next number of verses kind of like pulls that out. What would it look like if you fear the Lord? But first, I, I want you also to see that fearing the Lord leads to the good life. We're going to define what the good life is here in a second. But look at verse 12 with me. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Other translations, who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Like the answer, everyone. Everyone wants to have a long life, many days, and see what's good. Everyone would desire that. But the question is, like, what is the good life? What's the good life? What does it look like? 
And I'm probably going to give two answers because I believe there's an answer that we find in Scripture and there's an answer that we see in our world. And they're very different. So what is the good life? How does the world define what is the good life? What would be to get rich? Just to have as much money as you can. Get famous. Be fulfilled sexually, emotionally, physically. Often they'll ask and interview some kind of young people going into like college programs. Like, why are you taking this program? Well, because it'll give me a good job. Well, why does that matter? Because it'll pay me lots of money. That, that, that's the good life. Get lots of money. And it's not a sin to have money. If we look at it in 1 Timothy, it's the love of money. That is a sin. But this, this idea that if we can just be rich, if we can just be famous, if we can just be fulfilled sexually, emotionally, like that's the good life. But friends, I, want, I just want to point out to you as we'll look at what does the Bible kind of define as the good life. A big part of that is not believing God. In the garden... Right? And if you know in Genesis chapter 3, the snake came to Eve. And, and, and kind of brought doubts into her mind. And he said, hey, no, we can't eat from the tree of good and knowledge. In the day we eat of it, we'll surely die. And then and the serpent came and brought this doubt. Like, will you? Will you really die? And brought this doubt is in like, God's withholding good from you. Like, yeah, we say, yes, he's provided all that we need and all that we have, but we're, we don't really believe, and Eve didn't believe. Eve believed that there's something more that could be gained, and that's what happens. The world keeps saying, okay, yeah, God says, this is the good life we're going to look at. The world says, no, 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 you need more than that. God's withholding something from him. So what is, the, what is the good life in terms of how the Bible would define it? In the Old Testament... And I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. I could really just talk the whole time about that. But like just very narrowly, there's a phrase that's used a number of times that each person would be able to sit underneath their own fig tree. Basically, like whatever you have, you'd be able to use it, you'd be able to enjoy it, you'd be able to worship with your family. Everyone would be able to sit underneath their own fig tree. Micah 4.4, 1 Kings 4.25. In the New Testament, there's kind of a similar language 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12, it says this, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed so you may, may, may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So just thinking like the good life, provide for your family, enjoy the labor of your hands, worship freely. Yeah, I'm just trying to make a very narrow definition, right? If we're able to provide for our family or provide for ourselves, we're able to enjoy that which we work for and worship freely. Like, that is the good life. We, we should be content with that. Ecclesiastes would put it more succinctly. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, fear God, keep His commands. In doing that, you'll, you'll find the good life. And what does that look like? How is this life achieved? Well, by fearing God... As you live your life, well, what does it look like? Verse 13 and 14 start to describe that more in Psalm 34. Verse 13, it says this, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So fearing God will affect your speech. Like not telling lies or deceitful speech. You want to tell the truth. We want to be about the truth, right? If we're, we're believers, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're fearing God. We want to have the words that come out of our mouth to be true. 
But think about this. Luke 6.45 says this. The good person out of the good treasures of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure treasures produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So if we want to be about telling good and telling truth and not lies, we need a heart change. We need to, to surrender our lives to the Lord. We need Him to renovate and be at work in it so that you change my heart then you change the words that come out of it. So in order to live the good life, we need the, the fear of God and having the fear of God will help us to tell the truth and be a person of integrity, trustworthy. And think if we are a person who is trustworthy, looking at verse 14, continuing on, fearing God, we want to turn away from evil. And do good. We want to seek peace and pursue it. And in the Old Testament, I just quite simply, there's the idea that good actions determines good outcomes. Like if you fear God and you keep His commandments, like things are generally going to work out for you. That's what the Proverbs would have that type of mindset. Of course, generally we know this to be true, like a hardworking farmer who plants the crops and does everything he can. Generally, he'll be blessed. But then we know there's exceptions to that. We know like the weather can change, hail can wipe it out. And the same thing too, like fearing God, keeping the commandments. Generally, things are going to work out. We know there are exceptions to that. We're going to look at that as we continue on. But you think this, this call to turn away from evil and do good, we see it in the New Testament as well. This turn away and turn towards. 3 John 1.11 says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Many old saints before us, the Puritans, what they would do, they're like, we want to live a life that's pleasing to God. And so what they would do, they would open up the scriptures and search daily. And anything they found in here that they said, this is displeasing to God, they would run from it. And anything they found in the scriptures, like this is pleasing to God, they would run towards it. That's so we need to let the Bible define what is good and what is bad. And so you think of this like turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Or seek peace and follow it. Just a question, who are you following? Who are you seeking? Like who actually, like a person, are you like walking after? Or who online are you following? You're watching who's influencing you. On Instagram, or you, if you pull up YouTube, what's the feed that follows? Are you seeking good? Are you seeking peace? Seek peace and pursue it. That idea of the Old Testament, that peace being shalom. Like tied to the fear of the Lord. Like more than just peace within, but peace without. And of course we know as believers, we won't find that peace Outside of peace with God through Jesus Christ. And I, I love the way Isaiah describes this. Talking about living the good life, if you will, or living for God. He says like this, Isaiah 1, 16 uh, to 18. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. You've got to turn away from that which you know to be wrong. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We're like, yes, we want to turn away from evil. We want to do good. But again, we know 
We are sinners. We do wrong. That's our natural bent. That's why we need Jesus Christ. That's why I love the next line there in Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In terms of putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we can actually then be forgiven from turning to what is evil. Have our hearts changed and actually desire to turn to what is good. So then we can have peace. We can seek it and pursue it. By first having peace with God through Jesus Christ. But then in in pursuing peace, we not only want peace with God, we want peace with people. So we want to pursue peace with people. Walking in the Spirit. Peace in our relationships. So that would, then it would bring forgiveness to relationships. Like for sure, we are, we're sinners saved by grace and we're still sinners. We still butt heads. We still live in a broken world. There's going to be a lot of conflict in relationships. We want to bring forgiveness. We want to bring kindness. Right? We want to bring gentleness to our relationships. Romans 12, 18 it says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, we know sometimes we can't live at peace. There's just things that just kind of work out. We're just going to feel uh, the pull. We're going to feel that fight. But as much as we can, led by the Lord, can we seek peace and pursue it with other people? So the question is, do you see the, the testimony of the good life, fear God, and walk in His ways? Is that your testimony? Are you seeking God's good? And in question, are you pursuing peace with others? See, the, the testimony of the good life. Continuing on verses 15 to 18, I want us to see the, the testimony of the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. In verse 17, he says very, something very similar. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. I want you to see God sees, God hears. God sees and God hears. Think about how He sees, how He sees us. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says this, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards Him. Anyone who's seeking after God, anyone who desires to worship God, walk in His ways, God's eyes are looking for that person. God sees. An example of where God sees and God hears is, uh, is Moses. Well, the, the people of God in Exodus chapter 2. Right? You know the story. The people were in Egypt. They were slaves. They were being mistreated. And it says this in Exodus 2 verse 23 to 25. During these, those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw them, God heard them. We see this over and over again in the Bible. God hears us. Psalm 145 verse 18, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Take that to heart. God sees what we're going through and God hears our cries. Just a quick, like, what are you crying out to God about? Or are you crying out to God about anything? For those of us who are crying out to God, 
Maybe what's happening in our own lives or what's happening outside of our lives, God hears that. God sees what is happening. We can rest in that. And I also, if you're not, if there's something going on in your life, like I would encourage you to cry out to God because He sees what is happening and He hears when you do. It's the testimony of the righteous. Then I want us to see in verse 16, it's kind of almost the opposite, just as God's eyes and ears are towards the righteous. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is the opposite of Aaron's blessing. Now if you know Numbers 6, 24 to 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. That's like if God's for you. It's a great thing if God's face is for you. But if you are against God and you're abandoned against Him and God's face is towards you, like you are not in a good place. God's coming for your destruction. It says in, in Psalm 21, 8 to 10, speaking about God, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of mankind. Think of an example of this is Sodom and Gomorrah. That God in Genesis 18 to 20 to 21, he's talking with Abraham. He says, I've heard the cries that are coming up about Sodom and Gomorrah, about their sexual perversion, everything that's happening. And God heard, and then God came down to see, and then God sent destruction upon that city. Like, you're not going to meet another person from Sodom and Gomorrah because they are wiped off the face of the earth. Because God's judgment came down upon them. That's what we see where God's face is against someone. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. God heard the cries of God's people. And His face was against those who were doing evil. But often we can, we can read this in Scripture and maybe there's a disconnect. Maybe the time that we're living in, like, God, don't you see what's happening now? Where we were asking, like, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord, will you allow our country to continue on the path that it is? Our society, the world. How long? But in that, we also see God's mercy. We see God's kindness and God's patience. That more would come to repentance. That more people would turn from their sins. Find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Friends, I want you to, to know this though. That God sees and God hears. In a, in a very positive way as a follower of Jesus. God sees what we go through. He hears our prayers. As David said, when the righteous cry for help in verse 17. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. But the negative, if you're not following God, for those who aren't, people who follow their own ways or shake their fist at God, He sees what they do in the light and in the dark. He hears what they say and they'll be held accountable. Do we believe this? When we read this psalm, or maybe what we currently see happening, I was thinking, we can almost be like, uh, like many males who watch Canadian junior hockey. Every uh, New Year's Eve. And what I mean by that, I don't know about you, like, I've been like a couple of years hockey. But when I watch junior hockey, I become an expert. 
And I'm like, oh, if I was the coach, or if I, this is what I would do, this is how I would play the game, and also I become an expert. And often we can be like that when we look at what's happening around us. We read in Scripture these promises, and we're like, God, if I was in charge, this is what I would do. Instead of like taking a step back, like actually the God who created the, the universe and everything in it, I think He knows what's happening. And I think He has everything under control. And I think we can trust Him in that. Though we can still cry out, how long, O Lord? Friends, I want you to continue on the, the testimony of the righteous. I want you to see this in verse 18. I think within the testimony of the righteous is the testimony of the broken. Look at this, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Where does God dwell? Is this how David felt when he had to act crazy? When he was with the Philistine king? He had a broken in spirit? Was he crushed? And yet he, yet he got out there, God was with him? Friends, I just want you to, to think about this. I'm just going to read a number of scriptures. Where does God dwell? In Psalm 57, verse 15, it says this, Thus says Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Like, okay, yes, God is up there in the heavens. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. A contrite heart is one that's like broken of their sin, repentant, sorry for what they've done. He dwells with those who have contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's where God dwells. God dwells in a high and holy place. He also dwells with those who have a broken, a contrite heart. Psalm 51, verse 17. David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba and cried out to God for his mercy, he says this, Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Anyone who would, who would be broken before the Lord, anyone who would be broken because of their sin, because of this world, and going before the Lord, says that God is with them. And friends, I want, you to, I want you to see this, I want you to hear this. If you're in that place, and in your brokenness, like you want to push people away. You just want to be alone, you know, and you're like, where is God? God is right there. He's right there with you. And I just want to bring this before your attention. Isaiah 42, 1 to 3. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the Messiah. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Listen to this. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Just think about the kindness of Jesus Christ. Like a bruised reed he will not break. Like a branch, a little bush that's like broken over and it's almost falling over. He's so gentle that he wouldn't break that. A wick, like a candle that's almost, the flame is almost out. And dealing with that, he wouldn't put the candle out. That's how gentle Jesus Christ is with us. So if you're in that place, if you're feeling broken, hearted, you're feeling crushed in spirit, you can go to Jesus Christ. And He'll deal with you with a gentleness like none other. You know, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. 
And Jesus promises He will give us rest. I'm belaboring this point. Maybe that's a promise for someone today. You're like, God's not with me. I feel so broken. I feel so alone. Like, well, I, I read in Psalm 34, 18, though the Lord is near to the broken heart and saves the crushed spirit. As a promise, maybe someone needs to grab hold of today. But maybe for the rest of us, in the future, for sure, we're going to need that promise from the Lord. We need that scripture. Psalm 34, verse 18. When you're broken because of this world or undone because of sin in your life, and you turn towards God for forgiveness, you turn towards Him for mercy, you find a gentle hand. You find kindness to carry. God is near you. Out of the testimony of the righteous. Now, friends, I want us to look at the last stanza, verses 19 to 22, looking at the testimony of the redeemed. Verse 19, it says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Other translation, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Just in a, think of an example of that. You think of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 12. And he got put in prison, and he was going to be executed. And he's sitting in prison, and the church gathered together and prayed for him. And just this miraculous kind of exit, an angel comes in the middle of the night, opens the doors, and he walks out. You say, yes, amen, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. But now I'm going to start to pull attention in here, pull something, a bit of a paradox, if you will. We have this, this word from Jesus Christ. In John chapter 16, verse 33, and it says this, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. In the world you have tribulation. Other translations, you have trials and sorrows. You will have suffering. As a follower of Jesus Christ, like that's what we can expect. Period. Friends, I want you to see, though what, what David says is true, but I also want to put this into your mind. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33. It says this, if you know Hebrews chapter 11, it's talking about the heroes of the faith. And like for sure, every story, like they were delivered. Yes, amen, they were delivered. They called to God. Verse 33, talking about these heroes who through faith conquered kingdoms. Yes, delivered. Enforced justice. Yes, delivered. Obtained promises. Stopped the mouths of lions. Quenched the power of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword. Were made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in the war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. We're like, amen. Yes, they were delivered. It goes on. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Does not God deliver the afflicted when they cry out to Him? I believe He does. Sometimes, though, the delivery is death. 
So Peter, in Acts 12, he was rescued in a prayer meeting. He got out of prison. The end of Peter's life, he was crucified upside down. He didn't want to be crucified the same way his Lord and Savior was. But I still would say that that promise we find in the psalm is still true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. But how does God turn affliction and evil into deliverance? Look at verse 20 with me. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. I believe David first is talking about how God looks after the redeemed. Charles Spurgeon says, says this, No substantial injury occurs to the saints. Eternity will heal all their wounds. Their real life is safe. They may have flesh wounds, but no part of the essential fabric of their being shall be broken. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. But I want you to see that John in his gospel quotes this in the New Testament. It's more than just God will protect the righteous. So John in his gospel In John 19, verses 31 to 36, on the day that Jesus was crucified and hanging on the cross, John records these words. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. They might be taken away. Because if you're crucified, I guess you could, you could continue to push up and try to get more oxygen. You could live longer under excruciating pain. And suffering. They're like, hey, we need these, these guys to die. They broke their legs. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place, the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones would be broken. And also the, the significance of not one of his bro bones being broken is in the Exodus and a couple of the Passover meal. Like the Passover lamb, like a, a lamb was going to die in the place of the Hebrews. Not one of the bones of the Passover lamb was going to be broken. And Jesus, when did he die? He died at the Passover, and he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And not one of his bones was going to be broken. Fulfilling Psalm 34, fulfilling what was said about the Passover Lamb as well. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Psalm in that verse. He is the one who was afflicted, mistreated, punished for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's what I, that's what I love. Like, tell the testimony of the righteous, he is the righteous one. Yet died for us the unrighteous one. Jesus took the worst affliction and evil. He the most innocent one the world has ever known. He was buried in the grave but he did not stay there. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And if God could take the crucifixion of his own son and turn to the greatest redemption after history has ever known. He can redeem our affliction. He can redeem our pain. Redeem our suffering. The one commentator, Mark Fatato, says this, Jesus tasted the bitter cup of God's wrath in our place, that we might taste and see that He is good. But friends, we don't know what the future holds. 
But I, I do believe it holds affliction for those who would follow God and walk in His ways. It could be mockery. It could be loss of jobs or opportunity. It could be suffering. It could even be death. But can we trust that God will ultimately deliver us either in this life or in the life to come? He is faithful. Continuing on, verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. It will turn back on them, the wicked. There will be a time where wrongs will be made right. And it looks like this is Psalm 11, Psalm 7, verse 11 to 16 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull. Violence descends. Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But who does that? Friends, I want you to see that for God to do. God's the one who brings judgment down upon the wicked. Think about our job as Christians. Just bring this before your attention. Romans chapter 12, 19 to 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head, like cause him to repent, cause him to see the shame of his ways. Do not become over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I want you to see that in verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. We're saying, amen, yes, Lord, when will that happen? But until it happens, it's not for us to do that. That's for God. In verse 22, in, in closing, this is how I got the testimony of the redeemed. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. That term redeem means to buy back. Like, like someone, say, who is like born or, or moved into slavery as a person. Like has a master over them. And someone comes by and says, how much for this person? And there's a price that's, that's made and the price is paid and the person now is free from slavery. That's what that word redeem means. In biblical language, we're all born into sin. We're slaves to it. We don't desire God, but God in His mercy brought us back, bought us back from slavery to sin. Again, what was the price? The price was the blood of the Lamb of God. That's how we were redeemed. That's how we, we were literally we were purchased from a life of sin. We're going our own way. But we've been redeemed. There's that old hymn. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. 
Redeemed through his infinite wisdom, his child and forever I am. The price was Jesus Christ. His life on the cross. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. I want you to see that. None. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who would like turn and be contrite and broken in, in their heart over sin and saying, yes, I see what I'm doing is wrong. I'm looking to Jesus Christ in faith. It's forgiven. I love that none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. And none of those who seek God for refuge will be turned back. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And look at this. Look at this great promise. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Romans 8, 1. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just think of like that courtroom scene because that's the transaction that's happening. Like we are guilty. We're guilty sitting in the courtroom. Whatever wrongs we've done there, our head is hung low and we know we're guilty. We can feel the guilt and then we hear the judge say guilty. And we're like, yes, yes I am. And then a, a hand hits our shoulder and says, you're free to go. No, no, I'm I'm guilty. And he points over to Jesus Christ. No, he's guilty on your behalf. He took all your, all your wrongdoing and paid the price. And you are free to go. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, friends. I want you to hear that today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. It's fell on Jesus. The Lamb of God took it on our behalf. We've been forgiven. We've been forgiven. Made new, we've been made clean. Even though we stumble, even though we don't live a perfect life, friends, there's no condemnation in Him. This is the testimony of the redeemed. Is this your testimony? Do you see how they're all connected? In order to live the good life, we must learn to fear the Lord and walk in His ways. In order to have the testimony of the, of the righteous, we must trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We must trust in the promises found there. And then we'll have the testimony of the redeemed. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. And friends, what do you do with that? I think it's almost circular. You go back to the beginning of the song. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast to the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. If you are one of the redeemed, that is your testimony. If you want to bow with me, I'll close this word in prayer. Oh Lord, God, I pray you'd seal your word in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that which is from you, Lord, may we take with us in the days, weeks, years to come. Lord, I pray that which was, which was just from me, Lord, may just fall off to the side. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would take that word and use it to continue to form Christ in us. Use it to do your work in our hearts and in our lives. Oh, Lord. And I pray... You would use that to overflow, that we be able to testify to others of your goodness. Invite them to know you the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.